0: Many of you guys have probably heard the word blitzkrieg and uh it, it maybe brings like some stuff back from um, germany and uh the the world war ii and all that stuff or if you guys watch football and fo- football's back on they use the first part of that word blitz right so where all the offensive rushes in to just try to get the guy with the ball which is the quarterback usually uh, if the quarterback's good enough then he'll be able to avoid that so Um, The way we're going to be using it tonight um, is like the... Uh, how it was coined by uh, Time Magazine in 1939. So 1939, Time Magazine covered um, the invasion of Poland by Germany. And so basically, um, this wasn't initially a German term. It was more something that came out of the period between World War One and World War Two, Because what Germany did is they started uh, moving towards other countries. The first country was Poland, where they basically went in and hit hard and used the technology they had, uh, uh, that they had worked on for so many years in order to gain a victory. Um, now, the word Blitzkrieg is actually a German word that um, is put, of, uh, put together of two words. It's, uh, what it really is, is lightning war is what it is. So, lightning is blitz and then Krieg is, is war. And so... Um, I'm probably not pronouncing it right because it's a German word. Um, I asked uh, somebody back there and they said it and I was like, yeah, I'm not pronouncing it right. But it's okay. We get the point. Um, I don't speak German. I do speak Spanish. Um, And so there's three concepts that I really want us to know about. Uh, about Blitzkrieg that as I was doing a lot of research uh, towards it because I had heard the word before I just never really took the time to look into it until I was praying about this teaching and I was studying and then um, I ended up watching actually this documentary on um, World War II and how it led up to it and and it, it was actually pretty sad because of just everything. Anyway back to the Blitzkrieg, there's three main things that people said about it because it wasn't just a word, it's a term that came together. And so there's three main concepts that we're going to basically kind of study and attribute to the chapters that we're studying, which is 57 through 59. And so basically the first concept is one of a mobile war. And what really happened around that time was that companies started really developing uh, motor vehicles. And out of that, Germany took and made airplanes and they made uh, tanks and they made all these different things that allowed That allowed for war to move much faster. Um, I don't know if you guys remember history, um, but in World War One, they had what was called trenches. And so one would build a trench on one side, and the other would build a trench on the other side, and they would just fire at each other. And whoever dared to go into no man's land then was the one that would probably advance a little more. But it just went on for years. And so in a uh, rush and a, uh, an eagerness to avoid World War I all over again, um, what Germany did was use all these uh, tanks and all these different things. And, um, and so what we see is that the first concept is that Blitzkrieg is a mobile war. That's what it is. Um, The second thing um, it is, it's an incremental development of concepts and doctrines. Incremental development of concepts and doctrines. And I have a quote for you guys here that I'm going to read to you guys. It says, um, it's by Ong Wykong, who wrote a book on Blitzkrieg, whether it was um, rebellion or uh, evolution is what he called the book. And so he says this, Blitzkrieg was never a revolution but the incremental development of concepts and doctrines that originated from the com- campaigns of the first World War. So basically what he's saying there is that this term Blitzkrieg was never something meant that, oh, that, that, that it's like, oh, let's come up with a strategy, a strategy, a new strategy to do World War II, or a new strategy to do this. What it basically attributed to was just things that they learned, concepts and doctrines that they learned of what they did wrong, whether they're right, and then they went forward with this. And Basically, what Blitzkrieg really was is that incremental development. Basically, it's a step-by-step development of strategy, step-by-step development of the self. So for Germany, unfortunately for many countries, it was their military. Um, And so then the third concept is an intense military campaign intended to bring about a swift victory so, it's, uh, Blitzkrieg is also, uh, a, this concept is attributed to, uh, an intense military campaign. So basically what Blitzkrieg really is, is that uh, a military with mo- uh, mobile cap- capabilities, they, what they do is that they, they move forward as one and they attack one single point. Okay, now keep in mind now war's a little different. I was in Iraq and let me tell you, war is completely different than what it used to be back then. Um, now in, uh, I mean in, in World War I, World War II, war was completely different, and so what we saw was actually that um, there was two sides that were fighting, and they would bunker down, and they would make sure that they had enough ammo, enough food, enough everything, so that they could just not be invaded, and that's what they did. And so basically, um, when it comes to this intense military campaign, uh, Germany... Actually, what they did is they did the opposite of that. Instead of being static, instead of being just uh, rooted in one place, what they did is they attacked one point in the defense system. And when they attacked that what their their hope was that they would cause psychological confusion that they would cause disorder and that the uh other the opponent would not really know what to do and so they would fall apart and they would surround them and take them over and so that's kind that's kind of what that's what they did and they would have a swift victory um and later on i'll tell you guys a little more about how that went for them um and so Mind you, as we're talking about Blitzkrieg in Germany, um, I know that it's, it can be taken as, a, a, as history that's very touching to people, and I don't mean to uh, stir anything up, and I don't mean to also say or approve of what Germany did, but there's a lot to learn even in what they did. Um, and so one of these things is this, okay? Um, so now, Psalm 97.10 says that... Um, you who love the Lord hate evil. You who love the Lord hate evil. Psalm 97:10. And we won't go there cuz we have a lot to cover and so I want to make sure that we get to that. But basically what it says is that uh we who love the Lord hate evil. It doesn't say if we love the Lord, get away from evil or if we love the Lord, uh just just, you know, like pray about evil or whatever, it it, it says hate evil. It's such a strong word that's there, and and I think it's so important that they use the word hate, because when he says hate, you who love the Lord hate evil, it means that we, at the sight of evil, we should just be completely, uh, 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 completely broken hearted about it the way God is you see God I don't think looks at evil he says oh I'm going to destroy that or I'm going to do this or oh I hate it so no he he looks at evil and it breaks his heart because evil is something that he did not create and so what we see is that uh in in that same chapter in verse 11 he says light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. So what we see is that um, it, for, for those who are upright in heart, and there's a connection between upright being upright in heart, or standing in heart, or upright in heart, and being righteous. And so what we see is that there's light, there's gladness, there's righteousness in that, which means truth, the truth of God in it. And so, I really believe um, as we get into these chapters, we're going to look at fasting. We're going to look at fasting because chapter 58 is exactly what it looks like. It looks at the uh, wrong idea of fasting and it looks at the right idea of fasting. The right idea is really how God sees fasting, how God desires fasting to be. And so in 57, what we're going to see is, so basically in the context of these two chapters, 57 and 59, plays the context for chapter 58. And so in chapter 57, what we see is the wicked. We see those who are slain. We see those who are are walking in sin and dying really because that's what sin does. Romans 6 23 says that the wages of sin is death. And so what we see is that they are dying. Um, That's in chapter 57. In chapter 59, what we're gonna see is that there's redemption and this swift victory in the Lord and through Jesus Christ. Um, So Fasting is in the context of that. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at that and put it all together um, because when fasting is in that context, what we are really saying is that I am a sinner. I am unrighteous. Righteousness does not, does not come to me naturally. I don't know about you guys, but our initial thoughts, our initial reactions are never righteous. They're never righteous. I had this friend, Um, and, um, this was a long time ago, actually, now that I I think about it, but I had this friend, uh, we went to a, around Halloween, a haunted house, right? Not that I go to a haunted house anymore, but uh, at some time I did not know the Lord. So we went to a haunted house, right, and uh, we were the last ones to get in, and we walked through the whole thing, and I'm all, I've always been like, oh, okay, it's cool, whatever, it's nice, but I've never been too excited about them. And so we're in this uh, area where there's nothing but like cornfields, uh, and there's just this building in the middle of nowhere, this pretty big building, and so we walk out. They, they pull the doors, they lock the doors, and we're walking to the car in the parking lot, the car in the parking lot. And so what uh, is there in front of that building is like this big, round, like, floral thing with a lot of flowers and stuff like that. And so we're just walking. So it was me, his, uh, my friend, his uh, wife, and then so in a couple, and a few other friends. I don't remember exactly who, but we're walking, and just as we walk in the middle of the dark to our car and we're laughing and chatting, we hear this chainsaw turn on and it goes. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember it because, you see, when, um, when, when something surprises me, I do get really scared, but I freeze. I freeze the whole time until I can snap back into it and, and, and you know, figure out what I'm going to do. The other two guys that were with us, they didn't do that. <laughs> Their initial reaction was to take off, so they took off towards the car and left wife and girlfriend there, and it was it was it was kind of funny. But at the same time, I look at that and I'm like, our initial reaction is not to do good. Our initial reaction is not righteousness. It doesn't come natural to us. Uh, it just doesn't. And so. What fasting really says is righteousness does not come naturally to me. It says I need an intercessor, a redeemer, a bridge, um, a redeemer to bridge the gap between myself and God. It says I'm broken. I'm in need. I need a savior to bridge me, my me and God and my God. It also says. Uh, Fasting is a tool that has given given place to God uh, fasting is a tool that is given to place God giving gifts aside and move closer to God in relationship. So fasting is really a tool that God gives us with all the gifts that God gives us. Fasting is just another tool that he gives us to move closer to God, to move closer to that one true king that we say we desire and that we should desire. Um, so all in all, what fasting really is, is this blitzkrieg, lightning war on the flesh, a lightning war on sin, on, a lightning war on wickedness. Ending in victory through Jesus Christ. Because through Him, we're already victorious. I mean, I don't know where you guys are at today, but I could tell you that if you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling with thoughts, if you're struggling with brokenness, it's okay. We're here together, and we have a great God and, 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 and a Savior who said, we're already victorious continue to persevere. And so what we're gonna see is basically fasting in this context. We're broken, but there's hope. There's a redeemer, and let's use it as a tool not to twist God's arm, not to say, hey, like, I really want this. I'm gonna fast so that God can give it to me. It's sad. I've heard people say that before. No, it's not for that. It's a tool To change us and transform us to be more like Him. And so, as we um, go into these chapters, that's what we're going to see. So let's go to chapter 57. We'll start there. Chapter 57, verse 1. It says, The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands, for the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. So notice that first this chapter begins with talking about those who are upright, those who um, are seeking righteousness, who know that they're not there yet, but are seeking that. And notice that in verse Two, he says that they, he enters in peace. So when I hear that he enters in peace, that means that this uh, uh, being righteous is not, doesn't just come from us saying, I believe in, in God, I believe in Christ, I believe in Jesus, or I go to church, or I serve in ministry. No, it says that He enters. That means that there's a willingness, there's a wanting to enter into this uprightness. And so... Um, not only that, he says, who walk in their uprightness. And once they have entered into that relationship with Christ, once they have entered into what Christ calls us to, they're also choosing to walk in uprightness. They're choosing Jesus every single day. How many of you guys know who have been walking with the Lord, that walking with the Lord is not just, I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, I go to church, I, 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 I do all these Christian things, and that's it. No, it's choosing Jesus Christ in every single moment of our lives, because every single moment of our day, we're constantly being bombarded with all these uh, evil things, with all this sin, all this temptation, and so constantly we have to choose to walk in that uprightness. And so uh, somebody who's been a Christian or who is a Christian knows that a true Christian does not just stay, stay seated, does not just stay static, does just not, doesn't just stay uh, uh, not moving. We have to move. And when I say move, I'm not saying like do more than you're already doing. I, I'm, I bet a lot of you guys are already doing a lot and you guys go home and I'm like, and you guys are like, God, give me strength for the next day. That, that's, that's awesome though. What I'm talking about is spiritual. What I'm talking about spiritual. If we're not being pressed, if we're not being challenged, if we're not being stretched, then there's something wrong there. Because a true Christian knows that to be stretched is, is this concept of mobility that we were talking about with Blitzkrieg. It's this concept of constantly being moving. The moment we stay still is the moment that we stop growing the moment that we stop stepping closer to God, right? And so what we see here is that it's really a process that happens. Um, it's not something just happens like that. It would be so awesome if we would receive the Lord and He would snap His fingers and then we'd be perfect and in heaven with Him. That'd be great, Right? But that's not the way things are. That's a great fairy tale, but that's not the way things are. You see, the difference that we're going to see here with the righteous and those who are set to do wickedness is that the righteous are mobile. The righteous are constantly moving spiritually. They're entering into open doors. They're walking in their uprightness even when things aren't going well. Because if we know the God of the Bible, then we know that we're going to face tribulation. Walking with the Lord doesn't get easier. I, I honestly, uh, let's be really truthful and honest. I think about it sometimes when, it's, when it gets really hard. And I'm like, wow, like, way before I was walking with the Lord, things were so tail, so slow, so just relaxed. But now that I'm walking with the Lord, I'm like, oh my gosh, sometimes I feel like, like, like I'm up to here. I don't know if you guys ever feel like that. But sometimes I feel like I'm up to here. The difference now is that in those moments, I have the Lord to go to, where before it was a bottle, now it's the Lord. And, 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 and even though the bottle took, uh, took it for a moment, what the Lord does is He gives me strength. He gives me energy. He gives me peace. And so what we see is that that's going to be the difference between somebody who's upright, who's walking uprightly with the Lord, and somebody who's not. Um... So if we go to verse 3, we're going to jump around, uh, actually around a little bit here, but uh, because we don't have time to go through all the verses. And it's basically, it's going to cover the same concept. So verse 3 says, but you draw near sons of the sorceress. So he's talking about those who are not walking uprightly in their hearts. Offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman, whom are you mocking against who do you Against whom do you open your mouth, wide and stick out your tongue? So we see here that the first thing that he says is that, but you draw near. So they are drawing near. They're drawing near, but he says, but you guys are sons of sorcerers. And if we go to verse um, six or five, actually, he says this. So he says who they are, but then he's going to go and say what they're doing. And so in verse 5, he says, You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rock. So know that the Israelites, um, God told them, I'm going to give you a promised land. But not only am I going to give you a promised land, I'm going to take you into it, and you're going to be victorious, and you're going to have joy, you're going to have peace, you have all these things. But if you've studied um, the books of Exodus and just when they go into the promised land, the thing that he told them is, yes, you're going to go and you're um, going to rest in the land, but I need you to clean it out. I need you to do the things I tell you to do so that the land will be clean, so that you can have this peace. And so we see that the Israelites, what they do is they go in there, and they do it for a little while, and they take over all these lands, and then what happens is that they decide to just sit down and and lay back. And they no longer end up taking more of the land that they were supposed to. And in the long run, what really ends up happening is that instead of then being that uh, image of God to the other nations, the other nations impressed on them. And that impression was not one that was good. It was one where Israel, Israel, Israel became uh, um, fond of idols. They became worship, worshipers of idols. And then in the whole Old Testament, what you see is all these high places. And when you hear high places in the Bible, in the Old Testament, what it really is, is places of idolatry, places that uh, Israel had built to worship these other God. And so what we see here is that they went as far as not only damaging or, or leading themselves to death, but they're taking their children to these idols that they may be sacrificed. They're taking their children. And so as I was studying this, I was like, wow, that's atrocious. How could anybody do that? But then as I meditated a little bit, it was like, wait, hey, but in our culture, we do the same thing. We just do it differently, and we don't say the same thing. we call it abortion. we call it we call it homes without God. we call it all these other things that you can that you can point out in our culture that we do to lead our children astray away from God and so what ends up ha- what ended up happening with Israel was that they had static hearts, and static hearts create stale hearts. Static hearts create stale hearts. When we allow our hearts to not be challenged, and we run away from a situation or something, or or from pain, suffering, whatever it may be, whatever the Lord's trying to do in each one of our lives, when we choose to turn away from that and not be challenged, and we want to protect our hearts and all that, what happens is they become stale. I don't know if you guys ever let water sit for too long or if in, in Chicago, it rains a lot, so we have these flash floods and then water sits for a long time because everything's flooded and then it starts to stink. Why? Because it's been sitting for too long. You see a river, you'll never get that from a river. Why? Because it's constantly moving. It's rushing. Any body of water that moves Not going to go stale, but that's what happens to our hearts spiritually when we are when our hearts are static, then they become stale. So, what we see is that not only were they hurting themselves, but they were hurting uh, their own children as well. And in verse six, it says, "Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion; they they are your lot." To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things. Notice that um, in uh, the beginning of verse 6, it says, Among the smooth stones of the valley. So what the Israelites used to do is they used to take all these smooth stones and they used to adorn their idols with them. They used to put them on their idols so that they could look Uh, mighty, and wonderful, and beautiful, and, and they used to worship them. It's interesting, because when we look at the story of David and Goliath, I don't know if you guys remember, but what David grabs is smooth stones to slingshot. He grabs smooth stones, and with these smooth stones, he defeats the one that was defying the God Almighty, the creator of the universe, He grabs these smooth stones, and he uses it for that. Now, we see that Israel was in such a place that uh, they were no longer using what God gave them. They were no longer using the blessing that God gave them to glorify his name. Because I don't know about you guys, but God gives us worship as a gift. God gives us worship as a gift. And the fact that we can worship Him or praise Him or any of those, it's just amazing. And so they were using what God gave them to defy their natural instincts to actually give in to them because they became these static, they had these static hearts, these hearts that were not being challenged. They didn't allow it. And so what we see what we see if we continue on in verse 10, he says, You were wearied with the length of your way, but you didn't, did not say it is hopeless. You found your life for your strength, and so you were not faint." They got to a place where they believed that they were in a good place. Even though they got to a place of hopelessness, they couldn't accept it. They couldn't see it. They were blind to what God was trying to show them. They were blind to all that. God was trying to take them to a place where they said, I need God. I need a Savior. I need more than just what is in this world, the horizontal. I need God. But it says that, but you did not say it is hopeless. This is a heart that rejects God's grace, God's love. And so what we see is really that um, Israel it was not that they were in a bad place financially or not that they were in a bad place uh, materially, but rather they were in a bad place spiritually. And because they saw their blessings materially, then they assumed that they were okay. Um, They were okay spiritually. They were okay with God. But that wasn't true. That wasn't true because God says, "You're, you're hopeless, but you don't you don't say it. You're not repenting. You're not coming to a place where you're actually saying it and admitting it. You're just putting it aside. And it's so important for us to see that because um, I truly believe that just because we see fruit in a ministry, in a person, or in an organization doesn't mean that, that, we ha- that they, have a re- they or we have a relationship with the Lord. A lot of times we see a little bit of fruit, a seed or something, and we're like, wow, that person knows the Lord, or that organization is godly, or that ministry is godly. I'm sorry, but I don't believe that. I think that just like sin is a continuous walking a continuous walking what's against the will of God, I also can believe that about fruit. Yeah, anybody can give fruit, but can you give fruit continuously? Because there's only one that can give fruit continuously, and that's God Almighty. We can't. We could see good in people because we're made in the image of God. We could create good because we're made in the image of God. There's organizations that don't have the Lord but still do good things in the world. But to do it continuously and where it, it truly changes and transforms God's creation to restore it back to where it belongs, that only comes from God. That only comes from one. And so, what we see um, is that God, what he's saying to Isaiah is like, I'm not, I'm, not with, I'm not with them right now. I'm not dwelling with them. Yes, they're my people. They're chosen. I've chosen them, but I'm not dwelling with them. You see, um, um, God being actually being real and God dwelling is completely different. And so in verse 15, go with me to verse 15 he says that this is who he's with. He says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. So chapter 57, verse 15. High and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. So notice that he says that he dwells with those who are of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly. And to revive the heart of the contrite, you see God, what he 's saying is that he dwells with those who, in humility, have this remorseful heart, this who are walking in repentance, and the reason for dwelling with them is not that they 're worthy to be do, uh, for him to be dwelling with them, but rather. He wants to give them life. He says to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. So humility comes from the spirit of the Lord. Humility comes from the spirit of the Lord. But we have to submit, we have to surrender to the spirit, to walk in humility. You see, repentance is of the heart. And the Lord dwells with those who in their heart have truly repented. Because we could say, I'm sorry. We could say, eh, yeah, I, I'm sorry I did that. But the Bible speaks about godly repentance and, and, and worldly repentance. So godly repentance is, Lord, I know that what I did is wrong in your eyes. I know that I sinned against you. Worldly repentance is, I, I got caught. And, and, and I'm sorry because I got caught. I feel bad because I got caught. If I wouldn't have gotten caught, I would have continued in what I was doing. And so, what we see is that God dwells with these people, the people who are uh, remorseful, the people who are humble in heart. Um, and that all comes by His Spirit. You see, for in, in verse 20, He speaks again of the, about the wicked, and He says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. It cannot be quiet. So I've talked to people um, who, um, who, who, light, who I've met, and they talk a lot, and then I get to know them deeper and deeper, and as we talk, what really comes out is that the reason they talk so much is because they don't want to get deep. They don't want to reveal what's behind all that talk, and so a lot of the talk is very shallow, but there's a lot of talk I don't know if you guys met people like that, but um some of them have been close friends who have real struggles in their hearts and, and, and they don't want people to see that. There's, they don't want people to see that and so what what happens is that they'll keep it really shallow, they'll talk a lot, but nothing is ever deep. And so he says there's a problem with that. He says in continuing verse 20, and it's waters up toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So He says, is saying, for those who are in this place, there is no peace. If there's repent, un- unrepentant sin in our lives, there is no peace. If we're walking in darkness and wickedness, there is no peace. And as much as we want to hide it, and we want to smile in front of people, and we want to say, hey, good morning, how are you doing, all these great things, If we're walking with unrepentant sin, there is no peace. And hear me out. When the Bible is saying this, it's saying it because it's true. It's not saying it because this is what God wants for us. What God really wants is for us to be in peace. We have Christ in us who is the King of peace. And so He wants us to have this peace. So continuing on, um, we're going to see fasting. And he's going to talk first about the fasting that the Israelites were doing and how um, they were trying to do it. And then he's going to talk about the fasting that pleases him. He is literally going to say that the that, that type of fasting that he's going to describe displeased him. But the fasting, the other type of fasting is what pleases him. So we're going to start in verse 2. And he says, Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that did righteousness, and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments, and they delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. So what we see is that um, he's talking about the fasting that they're doing. And what's really happening is that as they're fasting, they're fasting in such a way where they're, they, they feel that they're already righteous. They're fasting from a place of I'm righteous, and because I'm righteous, look at me. Look at how I can go without eating. Look at how godly I am. Look at how righteous I am. And what it really reminds me of is the Pharisees in the New Testament, where they walk around with their huge robes and their huge hats, saying, look at me, I'm blessed by God because I'm righteous. And then Jesus speaks into all of it, including fasting. And so what we see is that... Um, um, back in Isaiah chapter 29, God speaks about this. So go with me to Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29, verse 13. This is what he says in Isaiah 29, verse 13. He says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment, taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discernment, discerning men shall be hidden. So we see that the Lord says, they draw near to me. They, they come to church, they come to the temple, right? They, they come and pray to me. They... They do all these things that I ask them to do, um, and in a way. They do all these things, but they do it with the wrong heart. They do it to be, to say, hey, I'm holy because I pray. I'm holy because I got in my Bible this morning. I'm holy because I went to church. Let me check that off my list, is what they're saying. But he says that their heart's not in the right place. Why? Because though they were doing all these things, they were drawing near to God, they were not obeying God's commandments. They were not obeying what God was asking them to do. And John fourteen fifteen says, If you love me, this is Jesus, if you love me, obey my commandments. If you love me, obey my commandments. And that's what Israel wasn't doing. And so Israel, and this is me thinking, Uh, But Israel, what they want is to receive blessing and just be all these things for God because God said that He chose us. God chose us, so uh, uh, we're we're just supposed to get all these blessings and we could do whatever we want. We could do whatever we want with grace. But that's not true because with grace also comes responsibility. And that responsibility goes back to John 14, 15. If we truly, truly, truly love Jesus, if we truly love God, then we're going to obey His commandments. And His commandments is whatever He asks of us. And so, as we obey His commandments, then we're changed. Then we're transformed. Then things begin to happen in our lives where we see blessing. And let me tell you something. I I feel like in the church, there's so much talk about blessing in the materialistic way. But... That's, that's not always blessing. That's not always blessing. Blessing comes in so many ways, much higher than money, so many ways, much higher than materials, the house with the white picket fence and the two, three dogs or whatever your dream is. <laughs> I don't know what your dream is. That's not my dream actually, but um, I just figure that's kind of like the American dream, right? Um, but it comes in so many different ways. I think I... I in my own life, I think blessing, I see it sometimes as like I'm struggling with some sin or I'm struggling with something and, and, I, and, and I pray and, and, I, and I'm not saying just like, oh Lord, please uh, remove this from my heart. I'm saying like I cry to the Lord. I, I struggle with the Lord. I, I, I get in His Word and let His Word really uh, get into me and His Spirit really cleanse me and then that day comes where I finally feel that peace, and when 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 that 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 thought's no longer there, that sin's no longer a struggle. Um. So it's 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 a process, though. It doesn't happen in the moment at a snap of a finger, or fingers. I guess you can't snap one finger. Um, it doesn't happen like that. And, and Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He, say, he says, and I'm going to paraphrase, that we're being transformed into the same image of the Lord. But he says, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say we're being transformed. He says, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It's from step by step. Sometimes it'll be two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes there will be no steps forward. Well, guess what? The Lord's still working. And so what we see is that there's this incremental development of doctrine that begins to happen in our hearts as we're challenged, as we're going through tribulation, as we are obedient to the Lord, really. Because if we're not being obedient to Him, then we're just being static the only way that there's movement is if we're being obedient to the Lord. The only way that there's growth is that we're if we're being obedient to the Lord. And and many of us may say, "Well, I don't know what the Lord what the Lord's will is." Well, start with the word. Go from there. Read his word. See what his will is in the Bible. And then from there he'll speak. He'll tell you. So I don't know what you guys Uh, The Lord is speaking to you now. But whatever it is, know that whatever He starts, He's going to finish. And it's not just one quick thing. Every time the Lord is pushing and, and, and stretching, He's trying to change something in you. He's trying to transform you. He's trying to produce in you something good. Some godly quality or character. So, Righteousness is built up in us by His Spirit. We don't, we don't come from righteousness. Righteousness is instilled in us, and so we see that the uh, these people they were basically coming from a, a place of I'm righteous, um, but He says that's not the type of fasting. And so in verse six, He says this: He says, "Is not this the fast that I choose?" To lose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. So we see that the first thing he says, and he uses a few words here, he uses the word um, that, that he chooses loose, undo, let, break. Notice, and then he pairs them up with these other words wickedness, yoke, um, uh, oppression. And he uses yoke again. There must be something special about that. But notice that he that that the fasting that he chooses is not something that exalts us, exalts us but rather that exalts him because he's the only one that could uh, tear down oppression. He's the only one that could loosen wickedness. He's the only one that can do all these things that he's talking about here. And I found it really interesting that for... Um, that for wickedness, it doesn't say that he completely tears it away or that he completely destroys it. The word he uses is loose. Loose is just to loosen wickedness, to, to tighten the yoke that it has on us. Why? Because we're not going to be perfect until we're with him in heaven. As long as we're here on this earth, we're going to deal with wickedness. We were talking about it earlier. We are naturally wicked. We are naturally sinful. But with the Spirit of God, all that is loosened. All that is changed. And we are being transformed. You see, um, what he's talking about here is what he's, he was talking about back in Deuteronomy 6.5. So go with me there really quick to Deuteronomy 6.5. In Deuteronomy 6.5, he says... And in these words, you're going uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And so Matthew, or not, yeah, well Matthew, Jesus adds more to that. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through thirty-nine, what he says is, this is the greatest commandment of all, because one of the scribes was trying to catch him, right? I don't understand. People were always trying to catch Jesus on a, at the wrong angle or whatever. Or they were trying to catch him up. And so what, what he says when this Christ comes over, and he says, hey, what's the greatest commandment of them all? Expecting him to say something that they could take and basically use against them. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5. But not only quotes that, he takes it a step further and he says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I don't know about you guys, But that's a big addition to the first one. In reality, they're all just one. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, then you automatically love your neighbor as yourself. Um, And so we see that he's talking about this, and in verse 7, chapter 58, verse 7, he says, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then we will we'll stop there and not hide yourself from your own flesh. So what we see is that he's saying exactly this is loving the Lord, your God with everything, but also loving your neighbor as yourself. So as you increment in love, as you increment in this uh, relationship with the Lord, then it's automatic that you're going to love the Lord God with everything, but you're also going to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's interesting because he connects this to fasting, this tool that we use to say no to ourselves, no to the gifts of God, to say, to say yes to the one true gift, and that's God himself. So then, there's this quote that I have, and I... It was uh, from this um, blog writer. His name is David Matheson. It says this about fasting. He says fasting is a voluntarily going is voluntarily going without food, or any other regularly enjoyed good gift from God, for the sake of some spiritual purpose. We fast in this life because we believe in the life to come. We don't have to get it all here and now, because we have a promise that we will have it all in the coming age we fast from what we can see and taste because we have tasted and seen the goodness of the invisible God and are desperately hungry for more of him that's fasting fasting is us being desperately hungry for more of him desperately hungry for more of his presence that we want to get t- take away from ourselves that he that, that he may approach, and so what fasting does, it produces fruit in our life. It produces fruit, and in verse eight, that's what he says. He says, "When you do these things, when you fast in this way, then you shall, you, then shall your light break forth like the dawn." Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 13 through 16, we are the light of the world. We are the light of the world because he is in us. He is the light that shines from us. And so here, sorry, I'm having trouble with my pages. So here he says, Then your light then your, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear. So what he's really saying, when we fast in such a way, when we fast in such a way, there's healing, there's fruit, there's restoration, redemption. And ultimately, that's what he's heading to. Um, because uh next section, chapter 59, what he's going to talk about, he's going to talk about this, this redemption that there is. Um, But he's also going to talk about the state of hopelessness that 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 exists in in us as human beings um, before Christ. And so, uh, before we go into that, in 1940, in 1940 is uh, going back to this term blitzkrieg. 1940 is when uh, the French War happened, and what really happened was that uh, Germany took the approach of blitzkrieg. And French uh, took the approach of being static, like grounding themselves in. And so Germany, when they went into France, what they did is they attacked that one single point and they hit it hard. And as um, the French were dug in and they used this static approach thinking, we have this, we're just going to create this approach or have this approach and they're not going to come in. What really ended up happening is that in 46 days, the country fell to the Germans. In 46 days, it fell and, and, and it's because they went in and hit it hard. And six months later, five other countries would fall with them through this same process. Um, and so what we see it, it, through this historical event, it, w- it it was that it was a intense, swift victory. It was an intense, swift victory. And the context of it might not be the best because it was evil that was moving. Um, but what I could tell you is that in Jesus Christ, we have this intense, swift victory as well. The uh, Everything's flipped around. It's no longer evil destroying good, but rather good destroying evil in Jesus Christ. And so what we see in, verse, in uh, chapter 59, uh, if we go to verse 1, it says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So the reality of it is that there exists this separation between us and God. And this separation doesn't exist there because of God. It's not God who cannot reach you because you're a sinner. It's not God who cannot reach you because you're in darkness or wickedness or you fill in the blanks. It's not God. God is not inadequate. The inadequacy comes from sin in our lives, comes from sin that we have allowed. Um, It comes from disobedience. You see, God is such a loving God that He's not going to force Himself on us. He's not going to force Himself into our lives. He's not going to force us into His will. That's just not the God of the Bible. And that wouldn't really be love. If we're really honest, and if we really take a step back and look at it in a worldly perspective, forcing yourself on someone is actually called rape. And that's not the God of the Bible. He doesn't force Himself on on us he allows us to be in places that we may respond to him you see we could take the approach of the french and just be static knowing that there is evil and there is wickedness and there is temptation and just say no i'm just going to sit here i'm going to sit in in services and i'm just going to sit here and read my bible and or we can actually take the approach in our hearts and say lord yes i'm going to do all those things but not with the heart of that's what keeps me in relationship with you what really keeps me in a relationship with you is that I listen to what you are telling me, asking me to do. I listen to everything and obey what you're telling me to do. I don't know if, if you guys are married here. Uh, for me, if, if my wife did nothing of what I asked her to do, I don't know that we have a relationship. I wouldn't be able to say, yeah, we have conversations. Yeah, we eat together. Yeah, we, we sleep in the same bed. But if she did nothing of what I asked her to do, then what kind of relationship would that be? That would not be a relationship. So why do we so much want to call relationship with the Lord one where we're not obeying Him? That, that doesn't, that's not a relationship. Not that anybody's doing that here. But uh, what, what I'm saying is, um, that's not a relationship. And there's no, in verse, if we go to verse 12 and 13, he says, there's no peace in that. He says, for your transgressions are multiplied before you, and your sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. There's really no peace in that at all. Um... And so what we see is that where there's real, real victory is the cross, is Jesus Christ. Yes, we use this tool to lay things aside and make ourselves approachable or available to God. But this tool is not that's going to twist God's hand. It's not going to twist God's arm. Why? Because he already did it all. He's already been victorious and victory comes to the cross. And so in verse 15, uh, he says this. In verse 15, the second part. No, sorry, 16. Uh, Second part, he says. Actually, I'll read the whole thing. He saw that there was no, no man. Sorry, no, yeah, 15b. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. The Bible says that Jesus sits at God's, uh, at the Father's right hand and intercedes for us. He's our intercessor. And it says, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And if we jump down, To verse 20, he says, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Notice that he says a Redeemer will come, but to those who turn from transgression. It doesn't say for those that just sit back and wait for the Lord to come, or for those that just uh, walk through life uh, steadily, just reading their Bible, being alone or whatever. No, it says for those that turn from transgression in verse 21 he says and as for me this is my covenant with them says the lord my spirit that is upon you and my words that i have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring says the lord from this time forth and forevermore so he says not only that but it's not going to depart from your offspring, your kids for generations generations to come you see The Lord saw the Israelites in their condition. The Lord saw them in their condition, and it displeased them because they were hopeless, but they didn't didn't recognize it. They were without a savior, but they didn't realize it. And so what he says, instead of saying, I'm going to destroy you, he says, I love you. And, and, and he invites them through this text, he invites them to a greater purpose, a greater life and says, Come, come, turn from your transgression, turn from your adultery, idolatry, from all these things that are keeping you from me and turn to me. Because in me you're going to find life. And that life is found and, 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 and we're able to have a life through Jesus Christ on the, dying on the cross. You see, with Jesus, we're either all in or not. We're either static or mobile. But when we surrender to Him, a blitzkrieg is exactly what happens through Jesus Christ, we're giving a life and opportunity to grow, to increment in holiness and righteousness, to be able to make decisions as believers that get us closer and closer to Him. So fasting overall is really a tool that He gives us to accomplish that, that He gives us to come closer to him because God says draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And I don't know about you guys, but that's that's my desire. That when I draw near to God, He draws near to me. Because there's nothing like being in the will of the Lord. There's nothing like being in the presence of the Lord and him saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. And of course we're gonna we're all hopefully going to hear that someday. And that's my desire. And I I, I invite you to have that same desire. And so uh, fasting is really this blitzkrieg idea of a a lightning war against our flesh, our our desires, not God's, against those things of this world that uh, Pastor Brandon would call an hors d'oeuvre and not the main buffet. So as we... um, Go on uh, tonight with our weeks. As you seek Him, ask Him to search your heart. Ask, him to he- ask to hear from Him that you may know exactly what He's asking of you. So let's pray.